Awesome, and a very good morning, uh, 10 a.m. Oh, it's amazing to see you, and uh, I am believing that one of these days I'm going to see your faces behind these masks. Come on now, can somebody say amen that he's going to come? <laughs> it's got to. Uh, this is awesome. This is a really good view. Can we? Uh, so I said to Taryn before I came up, how's my hair? And she literally went like... <laughs> is it right? Yeah. But I want to do a, a, a... Can we do a quick selfie? Because this is a good-looking crowd over here. And uh, let's, do, let's do the uh, double thumbs up. Can we do that? Yeah. Here we go. Uh, now I need to flip it. Uh, there, I got it. I need double thumbs up from everyone. Three, two, one. Hey, there we go. Amazing. Hey, and the hair looks good. It's fine. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't know what Taryn's on over here. Hey, happy anniversary to Vaughn and Laura Lay today. Woo. How many? 30. No, not 30. How many? 23 years. Uh, well, Vaughan and Laurel, we honor you and love you and thank you for the incredible people that you are, the incredible examples that you both are. We absolutely just adore you and your family so much. And uh, thanks for everything and pray for an amazing year ahead for you guys. Amen. Awesome. Hey, this house is full this morning. Good morning online and welcome. Uh, this house is full and yet I can count one, two, three, four, five chairs in the front row. Come on, guys. There's nothing wrong with the front row. It's not reserved, okay? I want, and I see a couple over here. Paige and Quentin, you were here, but you've moved. You're, you're hot. <laughs> I know, I know. Listen, last thing I'm going to, I know I'm jabbering. Uh, we're on generator again, that's why. And uh, yo, we need to pray. Uh, this area is suffering with uh, power issues, and uh, we, we believe in that it will be resolved. But uh, nonetheless, it's always amazing to be in God's house. Amen. Uh, it's always amazing to have you joining us online. And uh, so it will be awesome to have you uh, here. If you uh, are keen uh, next week for the blood drive, if you want to come through after the eight or the 10, uh, everyone most welcome to come through. Uh, it's a way of cultivating and being a blessing to the city, uh, helping make Joburg a good place for everybody to live in, given. Uh, and so let's prioritize that next week. And maybe we'll get a new record of how much blood we can give away next week. That will be awesome. Amen. Okay. I'm going to stop waffling. We're jumping in today. And uh, those of you who've been tracking with us for a while will know we're in the book of Acts uh, for the whole year. And uh, we love doing that. We love taking a book and working through it slowly through the whole year. We intersperse it with some other series along the way. Uh, but we've been in Acts for the whole year so far. And uh, we've been over the past three weeks, this is the fourth one, uh, in a series called Unstoppable God. Church. Church. See, I'm getting confused now. How good was the band? Oh, I love them. Can we just give it up for the band? They're so awesome. <laughs> love them. Unstoppable Church is what we see in the book of Acts. This church was born, uh, it exploded, it became the Unstoppable Church, and guess what? We are still living in the day of the Unstoppable Church. Can anybody say amen? Nothing has changed. The church doesn't stop. The church will never die. Jesus said that he's building his church, not even the gates of hell will prevail against it, and so we are still part of this incredible Unstoppable Church. God chose to use the local church as his way of getting some salvation to this planet, and so it's no small thing, amen, it's no small thing, and I'm just so excited to see how even this local church of ours is moving forward, putting Jesus first, and longing to see everything that he has for us as a church, I'm so excited about that. Now what we see here is Luke, the writer of Acts, was very intentional 
uh, when he spoke about the unstoppable church, he put some things in place to explain to us why this was an unstoppable church then and why it still is today. That's what we've been looking at over the past few weeks. And so we saw things happening in the days of the early church, like miracles we saw being performed. We saw evangelism happening. We saw uh, last week Lester preached on the boldness that broke out amongst the people to proclaim God. And equally convincingly, we are now moving into the fourth and final thing that we see in uh, this part of the, of the book uh, that made this the unstoppable church then, which will keep us being the unstoppable church now. And that is how they dealt with their money. Everybody say money. <laughs> I know what it's like, and I'll give a little disclaimer up front. It can be sometimes a little bit uncomfortable or awkward when we speak about the topic of money, and I don't want it to be. That's not what today is about. Uh, but as a church, and we've said this before, we don't pick and choose what we preach in Scripture, right? Uh, we preach all of Scripture. We preach all of God's Word. And so we don't sit and say, oh, what would be most comfortable to preach? What do people want to hear the most? We say, no, we preach everything because all of Scripture is God-breathed. Amen. And so we, we, we don't shy away from it. Um, and that's what we're going to be jumping into today. Uh, we're going to pick up in Acts chapter 4, verse 32. It goes all the way to chapter 5. So quite a chunky passage we're going to read together now. You can follow on the screen or on your own uh, devices or your own Bible. It says, verse 32, Now the full number of those who believed, and this is important, were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. Verse 33, And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. Okay, verse 36. Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means sons of, son of encouragement, a Levite native of Cyprus, it says that he sold a field that belonged to him. He brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. Okay, so that's Joseph slash Barnabas. But... A man named Ananias, with his wife Sapphira, sold a piece of property, and with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. And what happens is Peter says, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit, hectic, and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not also at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? He says, you have not lied to man, but to God. Very hectic. Then it carries on. When Ananias heard these words, guess what? He fell down and breathed his last. He died. The great fear then came upon all who heard of it getting a bit serious, yeah. The young men rose up, wrapped him up, carried him out, and buried him. Then it carries on and says, after an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened, and Peter had said to her, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, yes, for so much. But Peter said, how is it that you have agreed together to test the Spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. Hectic. Immediately, it says, she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. 
And the young men came in, found her dead. They carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And verse 11, great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. A bit of an ominous day for the early church, I would say. And so what we're doing as we're reading through here is um, I want us to get the big message of what's happening. I want us to get the overall most important point of what we see going on here in this part of the early church. But from the scripture, there's just two important things that stand out that I want to quickly hit before we jump into the bulk of the message. I think verse 32 is so important. It says, the full number of those who believed were of one heart and one soul. It doesn't say some of the group were of one heart and soul. It doesn't say some of them part of the congregation. Uh, It was all of the congregation, the full number of all the believers, and that's the young and the old and the rich and the poor. They were all of one attitude, one mind, uh, one focus, and one purpose. And remember that these Christians were from all over the place. They didn't have much in terms of background in common. Uh, they, they, didn't have the, they had very different worldviews, very uh, different backgrounds, and they're basically strangers. They didn't have this big relationship with each other, yet it says they were of one mind and one heart. And how is that possible? It tells us there in verse 33, because God's grace was working on them. Being of one mind and one heart and one soul. Why and how? Because of God's grace on them. What unites us together even today is God's grace that he's demonstrated to us. Amen. You see, they were not focused on the wrong things. They were focused on the one thing, and that is the grace of God in their lives. God has been gracious to us, which means we can be joined together with one heart and one mind. So that's the one thing. Also super importantly over here is because God has been gracious to us, because God has been gracious to me, I can be gracious to you. Because God has shown grace to you, I can show grace, grace to me, I can show grace to you. In verse 32, no one claimed their positions were their own. They had all things in common. Now it doesn't mean that nobody owned anything, but nobody saw what they owned as purely for them. It wasn't uh, their possessions, their wealth, it wasn't just for themselves. The point is they were committed to caring for each other. Caring for each other is what we see going on here. If, if you need something, uh, use mine. If you need something, take mine. No one is saying it's mine, don't use it, it's not for you. You cannot touch it, you cannot have it. They were committed to figuring out how to care for one another uh, at this point in time. We see two different examples here. So there was uh, Barnabas on the one side, Joseph, uh, and it says that they called him Barnabas, and what he did is he sold his piece of land. He brought all the proceeds uh, to the apostles' feet. That's how they would do it. It would then be distributed amongst uh, those who were in need. Today, we bring our tithe, our offering to the storehouse, to church uh, in the same way. They would bring it to the apostles. Uh, and they called him the son of encouragement. Can you imagine being called the son of encouragement? How awesome must that be? How encouraging must you be to get that name? And that's exactly what he's living up to in this moment. He's living up to his name. He sells his field. He gives all the money to the apostles uh, for helping those who are in need. And that is a way that you and I can be an encouragement to one another even today, caring for each other. We see a Christian in need. We see someone who needs help. We're able to demonstrate God's grace to them because of God's grace to us. And so that's uh, the the good example. 
Then we get the fearful example. That's what I think has happened in here. Ananias and Sapphira, they're this couple, and they did the same thing. They also sold the piece of property, but uh, instead of giving all the money to the apostles, they held back some for themselves and gave the rest. Now, that's not necessarily a problem, okay? In, in verse 8, it starts to clarify for us a little bit about what the problem was. It's not that they kept some money for themselves, because Peter says in verse 4 that after the property was sold, it was at their disposal to do with the money whatever they wanted to do. All right, that wasn't the problem. They could have kept all the money if they wanted to. They could have kept some back if they wanted to. They had the right to do that. But verse 8 shows us what the problem was, is that they had claimed to sell the property for a particular price, but that's not what the property was sold for. And what's happening is this couple, Ananias and Sapphira, they're trying to look like Barnabas. Okay, they, Barnabas did sell it and give all the proceeds to the poor. They did the same, but they didn't give all the proceeds to the poor. And what is observed in verse 4 is you have not lied to people, but you have lied to God. That's what's happening here. This is the problem. They lied about how much it was sold for. And I think what's going on is that they, they lied about it because they were doing it for show. They wanted to be seen. They wanted a bit of a wow factor. Look at what we did. We sold a property. We gave into the needy. Uh, they're trying to imitate Barnabas, but they're getting part of the heart wrong. Okay? And what happens to them is immediately they are killed. They drop to the ground and they die and fear comes upon the whole church. A fearful example of what's going on here. I, I think they fell into a trap of what many of us can fall into today. We want to do good, but we want to do good to be seen by others. We want other people to see the good that we're doing. It's a problem that comes up in this day and age of social media, that we feel that we need to put everything that we're doing, all the good that we're doing for others to see, and that's the exact trap that they fell into over here. And we can have those kind of motivations, which is missing the heart, missing the heart of what this is all about. And what this type of thinking is going to do in our day is it's going to stop us from understanding the whole point, the big picture of what is actually going on here in this part of the early church. And that is the big point of what's going on is the point of generosity. Everybody say generosity. That's the point. That's the big picture. And as we jump into this, I want to take us to this awesome passage that you might know well, Philippians 2, verse 6 to 8, which points out that the biggest giver, the most generous of all, is Jesus himself. Where Philippians 2, verse 6 to 8, it says, Though he was God, he did not think of equality with God as something to cling on to. And then verse 7, instead, what did he do? He gave. He gave up his divine privileges, his whole life. He gave up eternity. He took the humble position of a slave and was born as a human being. When he appeared in human form, he humbled himself in obedience to God and died a criminal's death on the cross. Our ultimate example of a giver, our ultimate example of generosity is the one who held nothing back, and that is Jesus himself. Amen. I've got a little exercise for you to do this morning, uh, and if you're watching online, chat to whoever you're watching with. Uh, but if, and, uh, and I'm going to ask for some feedback uh, after you've discussed this with your neighbor, is if I spoke to your, your nearest friends, your closest family members, those who know you and love you the most, and I said to them, what one word describes you, what do you think they would say about you? So turn to your neighbor and quickly discuss. If I was to ask your friends and family what one word describes you, uh, let's hear it. What are some examples of what I might hear? 
One word or two words. Nice. All right. <laughs> Online, what one word would people use to describe you? Okay, let's hear it. Shout out to me. What are some of the words that have come up? Anything? Clumsy. Clumsy. All right. That's not good when you're a photographer. <laughs> oh, you the clumsy one. Okay, cool. Uh, what else? Another word? Authoritative. Woo. Oh, you. Oh. <laughs> I'd be scared of you, actually. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no, no. I'll, I'll take you seriously. Uh, what else? Shout it out. Any other words that came up? Kind. Okay, good. Uh, how many of you had the word generous come up by a show of hands? How many of you? One, two. Okay, that's good. Three. Nice. Okay. How many of you would say generosity would, or a generous person would come up in your top three if I were to ask your friends and family? How many of you would get top three anymore? Yeah, a few over there. Okay, yeah, three. Yeah, top three. Now the question that I want to ask you is how many of you would love to be known as a generous person? Hands up. There we go. Pretty much everybody. And isn't that interesting? that the majority of us want to be known as a generous person, but the minority of us actually think that we are. Isaiah 32 verse 8 is so good because it tells us something very important here. It says, generous people plan to do what is generous, and they stand firm in their generosity. Okay, generous people plan to do what is generous. I want to tell you this morning, generosity is not a personality trait. Okay, if you take the strength finder personality test, it's not going to come up as one of your options. It's not in there. A generosity is not a genetic predisposition either. Generosity, I want to tell you this morning, is a choice. It's a decision that we make, and we can make the decision to be generous because of God's grace in our lives. But it's a decision that we make. It's a lifestyle that we choose to embrace. Generous people are generous because they have decided to cultivate generosity in their lives. Does that make sense to you this morning? They persevere in it. Okay, now there's many things in this life that we can't choose. We can't choose where we were born, for example. I was born in what I consider to be now a bit of a shady, dodgy hospital, if I go look at it now. Uh, my younger brother, because how many of you know the youngest child is always the spoilt one, was born in Santon Medi Clinic, so uh, worlds apart. Uh, but you can't choose where you're born. You can't choose who your parents are either. You can't choose who might decide to move in next door to you, okay? But the one thing that we can choose in this life is whether or not people experience us as generous. We can choose that. And the question that I want to say this morning is, does it really matter? Is it really important? Is it, is it significant to be known as a generous person? I want to say to you right up front is that the answer is an absolutely resounding yes. It's important. It mattered greatly in the early church. And I want to say it matters greatly in the church today as we continue to live up being the unstoppable church uh, that Jesus has called us to be to the world. 
And so there's seven reasons that I want to jump into, and they're quick. Don't worry about it. That's quick. Uh, about why does generosity matter to us today? And so I'm going to jump into those. I'm going to encourage you this morning to take notes as we go through these. And not only does note-taking get you to heaven quicker, uh, but it actually just helps the message sink in a little bit more. So there's, there's a, a lot of scripture as well that you can jot down as we go. Uh, but take it down on a notepad or on your phones or whatever, but it does help. Point number one. Why does generosity matters is that generosity honors God. Generosity honors God. Not only is being generous an act of obedience to God, but generosity faithfully and accurately represents God, and that is why it honors God. All right, so now I want you to imagine for a moment that you get invited to a very important occasion. Let's say you are invited to go and have lunch with the Queen of England. Anybody ever had lunch with the Queen of England, just out of interest? <laughs> that would be awesome. Okay, but imagine you got invited to go have lunch with the Queen. But on the day that the lunch is happening, you can't make it, unfortunately. But they say to you, it's all right, you can send somebody else in your place. Somebody can go on your behalf. Who would you send in your place to represent you at an important occasion like having lunch with the Queen of England? Somebody's coming to mind right now, and, and I want you to think to yourself about who that person is, and why is it that you would send that person? Why are you thinking of that person? And I think the reason that you would send that person is because you know that that person would what? They would represent you well they would represent you well. They would know what to say, what not to say, how to behave, how not to behave in order to be representing you well in your absence. Now, I think that a very sobering thought is that God's reputation rides on our representation. <laughs> it's hectic, isn't it? God's reputation rides on our representation of Him. Because there's plenty of people out there in the world who are making judgments about our faith, judgments about Christianity, judgments about God based on how they see you and I live. It's a very sobering thought to think. But that when we live a generous life, we are faithfully and accurately representing God. Because why? God is a giver. Why? Because God is generous. And so when we give, when we are generous, what are we doing? We are accurately representing Him. Psalm 37 verse 21 tells us that the wicked borrow and never repay, but the godly are generous givers. The godly are generous givers. In other words, those who are like God, those who represent God, those who imitate God are generous givers. And so I think the first reason, and I think it's one of the most important reasons that we are called, all of, all of us are called to a life of generosity because it honors God. We see it in the early church as a way of honoring God, and it still is a way today that we can honor God. Not only is being a generous person an act of obedience to God, but it's a faithful and accurate representation of God, and therefore it honors Him. Amen. We're moving on. Point two, uh, generosity proves faith. Jot that down on your notes this morning. Generosity proves faith. I suppose the question that we could ask ourselves is, how do we know 
when we live in a life that is fully surrendered to Jesus? How do we know when we have fully said, Jesus is Lord of my life, uh, we trust in Jesus in every single aspect of our life, how do we know when we are at that point? And I would say that one of the ways that we would know that we fully surrendered to the Lordship of Jesus is through the evidence of generosity in our lives. It's one of the most important ways. In 2 Corinthians chapter 9, we find Paul and he's writing to the Corinthian believers. It's concerning a gift that has been put together to be sent to Jerusalem. So the Christians in Jerusalem had suffered some adversity. They had gone through a drought, uh, and they were struggling. So what was happening is the Corinthian believers put together a parcel of food and supplies and clothes, and they were going to send it with Paul to Jerusalem. Okay, so in verse 11, we see something very interesting. Paul says, Yes, you will be enriched in every way, so that you can also be generous. And when we take your gifts to those who need them, they will thank God. And then it says, so two good things will result from this ministry of giving. Number one, the needs of the believers in Jerusalem will be met. And number two, they will joyfully express their thanks to God. As a result of your ministry, they will give glory to God. For your generosity to them and to all the believers will prove that you are obedient to the good news of Christ. How good is that? So how do you know when you've made the decision to follow Jesus and fully surrender to your life to Him and fully serve Him? How do you know when your faith is sincere and you're fully trusting God? Well, what Paul's saying over here is that when we choose to live generously with our time and with our attention, with our energy, with our material wealth, when we choose to live generously with that, we are at the same time affirming our dependence on God. We're, we're affirming our trust in God. We're affirming our obedience to God. Or in another word, we're affirming our faith. Our faith. When we choose a life of generosity, we're affirming our faith. Notice again, verse 32. The full number of those who believed were of one heart and one soul. It's telling us that all the believers got it. The full number of believers got this. They understood this. They grasped this idea of generosity with one heart and mind. And so I want to just remind you today and tell you that there is no such thing as an ungenerous Christian. Is that all right to say? There's no such thing as a, it's an oxymoron, okay? An oxymoron is an apparent contradiction of terms like the Great Depression, or telling someone to act naturally, all right? It's a contradiction in terms. Country music. It's a contradiction in terms, all right? So an ungenerous Christian is an oxymoron, a contradiction in terms. So you're not going to come across any Christian, uh, it would be an oxymoron if there's a Christian who's ungenerous, or if you come across a Christian who is ungenerous, it's not an oxymoron, they're just a moron. Amen. There's no such thing as an ungenerous Christian. Moving on, number three, generosity expresses love. It expresses love. Now, it might be true to say that you can give without loving. It, uh, it's true that you might be able to give without loving, but you can't love without giving. It's impossible to love without giving. You are not a loving person until you are a generous person. Yep. Uh, and this, again, proves our faith. 
in, in 1 John, I told you there's a lot of scripture today. 1 John 3, 16 to 18, John affirms this idea. And he says, we know what real love is because Jesus gave up his life for us. So we also ought to give up our lives for our brothers and sisters. If someone has enough money to live well and sees a brother or sister in need, but shows no compassion, how can God's love be in that person? Dear children, let's not merely say that we love each other. Let us show the truth by our actions. That's so good. So, so helpful. And John is saying that if you are going to be a loving person, then you have to be a generous person. Because generosity is an expression of love. Yes? If we want to be loving people, we have to be generous people. Amen. Moving on. Number four. Generosity changes hearts. It actually changes hearts. Now, how many of you would like to guess whose heart gets changed first when you're generous? Your own heart. I can tell you that right now, and many, many people in this room will tell you that when you are generous, the first heart that gets changed, the first life that gets changed is your own. Because what happens is that generosity takes the cold, hard fingers of greed and of pride and of selfishness and of materialism and pries it off of our heart. That's exactly what generosity does. When we live a generous life, when we give generously of our time and our affection and our attention and our material wealth, what happens is we free and we liberate our own hearts. And Jesus was so brilliant when he taught about this, one of my favorite passages. He taught about the relationship between the human heart and money in Matthew chapter 6, 19 to 21, when he says, don't store up treasures here on earth <laughs> where moth eat them and rust destroy them and where thieves break in and steal. Store your treasures in heaven where moths and rust cannot destroy, where thieves do not break in and steal. And verse 21, wherever your treasure is, there the desires of your heart will also be. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be. I just want to repeat it one more time this morning. Write this one down. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be. And what John is saying over here, that if, um, sorry, moving on. I was, I was on the wrong one. What Jesus is saying over here is that the affection of our heart will be determined by the allocation of our treasure. Okay. The affection of your heart will be determined by the allocation of your treasure. The affection of your heart will follow the allocation of your treasure. And so while it's true to say that we give because we love, I want to say it's equally true to say that we love because we give. Amen. We, we, we develop a love. We develop an affection for the things to which we give to. We develop a love and we develop an affection towards the people that we are generous to. Because whatever you get invested in, you get interested in. 
Whatever you get invested in, you get interested in. And so I won't ask you to put up your hands, but anyone who's uh, shown interest in the Bitcoin uh, revolution over the past few years, uh, you know, it's, it's something that you invested into. And, and when you invested into it, you suddenly got interested in it. And so you would join forums and you would watch videos and you'd have conversations, many, many conversations with the people in your lives about Bitcoin. And then when Bitcoin went up, your heart rose with it and then when Bitcoin dropped you dropped with it but why because whatever it is that we're interested whatever it is that we're invested in we are interested in and the thing is we develop an emotional bond with whatever it is that we get invested in and that is true of the lives of the people that you invest in it's true of the church that you give to and invest in it's true of your giving to God, we develop an affection for wherever we allocate our treasure. And what happens is it changes our hearts. And that's the wonderful thing. It's not only does it change our hearts, but how many of you know that when you are generous to others, it changes the hearts of them? It changes other people's hearts. It changes other people's lives. It's the wonderful thing about generosity is that when you're generous, it, breaks down, it can break down walls. It can neutralize hate. It can dispel anger. It can overcome prejudice when you act generously towards other people. Think about the last time that somebody was just amazingly generous to you. How did that make you feel? Generosity can change hearts. I want to take a moment this morning to say that you might be sitting in a place in your life where you're feeling a little bit apathetic about certain things. I want to say that the answer towards apathy is to give more. If you're sitting here this morning and you're feeling a little bit apathetic in your marriage, I would propose that the answer towards that apathy is to give more to your marriage. Is that all right? Can I say that this morning? If you're sitting here and you're feeling a little bit apathetic towards God, I want to say that the answer towards that apathy is to give more to God. Yeah. He's, God is the one who gave everything. I'm not talking about financially. I'm talking about giving of yourself and your attention and your affection and your worship and all of who you are. If you feel in a sense of apathy, the answer to that is just give more. Yeah. It's counterintuitive. It's the upside down kingdom. But this is what we learn in here. Amen. Are you still with me? Yeah. Okay, I'm moving on to point five, and uh, this one comes with a PG warning, okay? So if you've, if you've zoned out a little bit, zone back in right now. Uh, pastoral guidance, that's, that's the warning that this is coming with. Uh, what I'm about to say might uh, rattle a few cages, uh, especially of the religious establishment. That, uh, anyway, uh, so zone in, uh, get your, nudge the person next to you and say, hey, get the popcorn out. This is now about to get interesting. Uh, now, I don't want you to hear what I'm not saying in this. So I will, I will tell you first what I'm not saying. I'm not about to go into a section about prosperity gospel. I'm not going to go into a section about name in it and claim in it, okay? Now, some of you have heard of these phrases before. Some of you don't know what I'm talking about. So those of you who know, I'm not going into prosperity gospel over here. But what I want to say is that the point is generosity produces blessing. Okay, this is point number five. Generosity produces blessing. I actually believe firmly that every Christian wants to live under the blessing of God. Amen. 
I believe that every Christian wants to enjoy the favor and the providence and the protection and the goodness of God. I believe that we desire that as his children. I have never met a Christian who wants to be miserable. I have never met a Christian who said, my life's desire, but when I die, I want them to put it on my stone that I lived a life as a miserable Christian, okay? I've never met somebody like that. But at the same time, I have met a lot of miserable Christians. Uh, not here, of course, in, just in life. Not you online, no. Uh, but this is the interesting thing about it, is I've met miserable Christians, but I believe it's because they've chosen to be miserable. They've made choices in life to be miserable. You see, I think the thing with us as humans is we don't actually always choose what we want. For some reason, we sometimes choose what we don't want. Uh, this is just one of the weird things about us. We often choose what we don't want. And so you can find Christians who are miserable, but it's due to their choices. They've chosen what they don't want, and they end up with that. Uh, and so that can happen. But I've never met a Christian who genuinely says, I want to live a miserable existence, okay? But I think what very few Christians understand, and I want you to get this this morning, is the connection and the correlation between enjoying blessing and embracing generosity. The connection between enjoying the blessing of God and embracing a life of generosity. I want to say this morning, if you want to live a blessed life, you have to embrace a generous life. You have to embrace a generous life. I've got two Proverbs for you. Proverbs 11 verse 25 says, The generous will prosper. Those who refresh others will themselves be refreshed. How great is that? The generous will prosper. Those who are refreshing others will themselves be refreshed. Proverbs 29, verse, 22 verse 9 says, Blessed are those who are generous because they feed the poor. Blessed are those who are generous because they feed the poor. If you want to live a blessed life, you have to embrace a generous life. 2 Corinthians 9 verse 6 again, another scripture for us. Paul speaking to the Corinthian believers, and he says to them, remember this, a farmer who plants only a few seeds will get a small crop, but the one who plants generously will what? Get a generous crop. And so Paul is likening our giving to an act of sowing. He, he says every time you give, you sow. Every time you sow seed, there is a harvest, there's a return, there's a reward, there's a receiving. Every time that you sow, there is a receiving. And how many of you know a good farmer sows expecting a harvest? I wouldn't ever want to work with a farmer who sows not expecting a harvest. A good farmer expects a harvest. And so the reason that God calls you and I to live a generous life is because in embracing a generous life, we plug into uh, the economy of heaven. And I want to just talk a little bit about that right now. It's an economic cycle of heaven. You see, here on earth, when we talk about economy, all of the economies on earth operate on the same principles. They operate on the principle of buying and selling, right? All economies on earth operate on the system of supply and demand. But the economy of heaven is different. 
The economy of heaven is fueled by the principles of sowing and reaping, on the principles of giving and receiving. And so the reason God wants you to give is because every single act of giving is an act of sowing. And until you sow, you can't reap. Until you give, there cannot be a return. Jesus was the one who said, give and it shall be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, running over. Amen. So I think many of us could have grown up in these church cultures uh, where we were taught that you need to give without expecting anything in return. Because if you did, uh, it would be impure motives, it would be selfishness or whatever the case is. Now, while that might sound right in a bit of a self-righteous religious system, that's not actually biblical. I actually believe that when you give, you are supposed to give like a farmer. You are supposed to give with the mentality of sowing with the expectation that there will be a harvest, that there will be a receiving, because you cannot give what you haven't received. Amen? You can't give what you don't have. You can't give mercy to somebody else if you yourself have not received mercy. You can't give hope to somebody if you haven't first received hope. You can't give love until you yourself have received love. Jesus said, freely you have received, so freely give. It's cyclical in nature. You have received, so you give. It's the cyclical thing. And so Jesus has called us to give so that we can sow, so that we can give again. That's the principle. And so I don't think giving in order to receive is the problem. I, I, I don't think there's a problem in that. I, I, I don't think there's a problem with giving in faith that there's going to be a harvest uh, from that. Uh, but I think that the issue comes up of motive as to the how and the why you want to receive. I think that's where an issue can come up, the motive behind it. Uh, why do you want to be on the receiving end of God's goodness? Why do you want to be on the receiving end of God's favor and blessing? And do you want to be on the receiving end of his providence and his favor and his goodness and his blessings so that you can have more? Because then you've missed the whole point. If you want to receive from God to have more, you've missed the point. But if you want to be on the receiving end so that you can give more, then you've got it. Then it's starting to drop. I've said this before that if we allow the blessing of God to flow through us, it will continue to flow to us. If we let the blessing of God to flow through us, it will continue to flow to us. But the moment that we put a lid on it, okay, this is important. The moment that you make it all about yourself, the moment that you make it an end to a mean or you make it all about self-improvement or self-enhancement or self-preservation, then you have completely missed the whole point. But if you understand, on the other hand, that what we are called to be is we're called to be what conduits of God's blessing, then we actually get it. God said to Abraham, I will bless you and you will be a blessing to the nations of the world. And so if you get that revelation, God will continue to lavish his blessings on you if you continue to lavish those blessings onto the next person. God wants you to be blessed so that you can be a blessing. That's the whole point. God wants you to have joy so that you can impart joy onto somebody else. 
God wants you to be at peace so that you can be a peacemaker. And I'm so acutely aware again this morning that we're living in a world that desperately needs to be at peace. Amen. We're living in a world of chaos where people are desperate for the peace of Jesus. And God wants you to be at peace so that you can be a peacemaker. That's the whole point of what's going on over here. God wants you to give to others that which he has given to you. And he calls us to a life of generosity. And this is important. He doesn't, when God calls us to a life of generosity, he's not trying to get something from us. He's trying to get something to us. Amen. In calling us to this life of generosity, he's trying to get something to us, not something from us. But what we have to do is we need to plug into this process. We need to plug into this process, sowing and reaping, giving and receiving so that we can give again. Is that good this morning? Awesome. We need to get this understanding of what it means to be conduits of the blessing, goodness, favor of God in our lives. All right, I'm moving on very quickly. Number six, it's a quick one. Generosity inspires others. I don't know if you've ever seen this in your own life. I certainly have seen this, that when we are generous, those around us catch that. They catch that conviction. They catch that generosity. I think that might have been what was happening to Ananias and Sapphira. They were catching on. All the believers were of one mind and soul. They were catching on to this idea of being a generous people. They got part of the heart wrong, okay? But when we are generous in our lives, people around us catch on. Paul, in Acts chapter 20, a little bit later, verse 35, says, I have been a constant example of how you can help those in need by working hard. You should remember the words of the Lord Jesus, and these are his final words. It is more blessed to give than to receive. It is more blessed to give than to receive. And Paul says the reason he worked so hard and the reason he showed so much generosity was because he wanted to be an example to others. Amen. As the band joins me on stage this morning, the last point that I'm going to make is that generosity impacts eternity. Come on, everybody say eternity. We're wrapping up this morning. Has this been helpful so far? Awesome. Generosity impacts eternity. I think that one of the most profound, one of the most mind-blowing revelations in all of Scripture is that how we give in this life determines how we receive in the life to come. It's profound. Paul says this in 1 Timothy 6 verse 17 to 19 and he says teach those who are rich in this world not to be proud not to trust in their money which is so unreliable their trust should be in God who richly gives us all we need for our enjoyment and then verse 18 says tell them to use their money to do good they should be rich in good works and generous to those in need always being ready to share with others by doing this they will be storing up their treasure as a good foundation for the future so that they may experience true life. This is so profound that how we give in this life has a direct impact on how we receive in the life to come. You know, this morning, I, 
I want to just say that it's a sobering thought that we can spend our entire life, this life, this little whisper of time that we're here, we can spend our whole lives trying to receive in this life, but never receiving anything in the life to come. You can achieve every accolade, you can achieve every success, you can achieve fame and fortune and celebrity in this life, but yet never receive anything in the life to come. And how many of you know that what we achieve in this life pales into significance by comparison to that which we will receive in the life to come? Amen. It's often said you can't take it with you. Yeah, it's true. There's truth to that. You can't take your stuff with you into the next life. But you see, what you can do is that you can take with you that which you give now. You can't take your stuff with you, but you can take what you give with you. And so how do you do that? How do you store up treasure in heaven? You store up treasure in heaven by laying down treasure on earth. As Russell Crowe famously said, not in the Bible, everything that we do in this life echoes into eternity. And that is so true. Everything that we do in this life, everything that we do in this life echoes into eternity. And the way in which we give, the way in which we show generosity in this life, I want to tell you, echoes into eternity. I want to just wrap up with one final verse. Philemon chapter 1 verse 6. And this is my prayer for us as well. I am praying that you will put into action the generosity that comes from your faith as you understand and experience all the good things we have in Christ. And I want to say that a generosity revolution in your life is going to come about by a generosity revelation in your life. I want to say that a generosity revolution, and I actually believe that this church is on the brink of a generosity revolution, but a generosity revolution in the life of this church will come about when we get a generosity revelation from Jesus. And Paul's saying here that when we come to an understanding of why God calls us to live a life of generosity, when we come to an understanding that God has already given us everything that we need and when we come to an understanding of how our faith informs our generosity that is when we'll be able to start putting this into action and that is my prayer for every single one of us that is my prayer for city hope church in 2022 that we'd experience a generosity revolution as we get this revelation deep within our hearts, that God is the one who says that generosity greatly matters. And he's called every single one of us with one heart and with one mind to a lifestyle of generosity. Amen. Amen. Awesome. Well, I'm going to ask us to stand this morning as we wrap up. Jesus, this morning we come before you and say we just want to say thank you, Lord for the ultimate example of what it means to be generous, what it means to give. We thank you, God, that you sent your one and only Son, Jesus, to us, that we can have life now and that we can get this revelation of what it is to be a generous giver in this life that will echo into eternity. Lord, won't you let this sink deeply into our hearts? 
Lord, won't you cause a generosity revolution to rise up amongst us in the life of this church as we want to go forward, as we want to have all the impact that you have for us to have as a church. We thank you for all that you are. We thank you for all that you're doing. We bless you and we worship the one and only name of Jesus right now. Amen. Let's sing.